Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. You think you know everything until you learn about something that you knew nothing about. And like knowing about more stuff makes you aware of how little you know about something. So I think, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's exactly what you're saying. The more you like learn about other things, get in contact with other cultures, you're like, all right, I knew nothing about this other thing. You're opening up your field of view and then you're seeing how much more there is to, to learn about, how many gaps you had that you didn't know that you had. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More. In this episode, I have my old friend from my college days at Penn State, Jorge. Many Americans have the tendency to congregate to the areas or the regions or the states that they grow up in. And many Americans have never actually flown before or been to a different country. So they have a very limited experience. Whereas you, Jorge, out of many people that I know, you have a vast experience of immigration stories. So I would love to start from the beginning and tell us a little about your origins, your stories, and who you are. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ben, for having me. Thanks, Aiden. I'm looking forward to talking with you guys. But yeah, so I am Bolivian. All my family is from Bolivia. However, I was born here in the United States. So I do consider myself Bolivian, but it is some one of these things that um, in my mannerisms, in where I've lived, it's definitely more Latin American and within that Bolivia. So I was born in the U.S., but shortly after, went to Bolivia to live there. I did a, co- a little bit of my schooling there when I was um, starting from kindergarten through the first part of like elementary school. Went to Costa Rica for four years and then came back to the United States, Did finished off middle school, did my first two years of high school. Didn't get to finish off high school here in the United States because I had to go to the Dominican Republic to finish my last two years of high school. After finishing high school, I came back here for college. So I kind of jumped around a lot and it was because of my dad's work. He worked for a national company, like a public policy national company. So it was jumping around a lot because of that. And then professionally, of course, you from your personal upbringing and your cultural upbringing, you traveled a lot due to your circumstances, what your family did, what your dad did to be specific. Whereas if you look at your professional career, you also travel a lot, right? Because you're a technology consultant. Maybe uh, tell us a little bit about your job, your work, and then how that has influenced or how your career aspiration has been influenced by your upbringing. Yeah, sure. So yeah, definitely it's traveling has been kind of a big part of my life. Even when I was living in these other countries, my parents always had the, uh, like they always tried to find the way in order for us to not necessarily travel to other places, but explore the places that we were in, getting to know those a little bit more. Um, I kind of kept doing that. When I came here to the United States, as a college student, I tended to meet people from a lot from Latin America, but other countries as well. A lot of people from Saudi Arabia, some Egyptian friends that Ben, you and I have in common. So I got to meet all these people. And then during those vacations that you usually had, always tried to go to like a new country. So I got to know um, Nicaragua from a friend and really get to know the place, having a local like show you around. I got to go to Spain when one of my friends was like studying there. I know Ben, you and I were going to do uh, an Egypt trip that never that never was. It's one that I kind of regret not being able to do. But yeah, other than that, it's I think it's also helped me having these experiences in my work. I work with people from a lot of different countries. Just having like 
the word thank you in a language that you know because you picked up from somebody else being able to say that word it just creates that connection i think that you didn't you wouldn't necessarily have if you're just like speaking normally it's those things knowing about other cultures really helps you if not create like a good base it helps you break the ice a little bit with new people because you're like hey I know something about you, or like, there's, there's, there's something about you. Let's talk about that, and then you kind of like move on from that. So I think that's a, that's a good experience, and I'm glad that you bring it up because I, I do think that it is something that it's, uh, it's been part of my life. Yeah, it's definitely super valuable. I know I always joke that my Euro trip after college taught me more about life than actually college, just because you're seeing so many different new perspectives, meeting so many different people. And really just having conversations with strangers can like shape the way you think forever forward. And I know a lot of people have been traveling these days. I think that's, or not these days because we're in COVID, (laughs) you know, kind of pre-COVID era. I've noticed a high emphasis on traveling between millennials. I think people recognize the tremendous value it has. But for you, one of the things that stuck out about your story is actually growing up and being educated in different countries. I was wondering if you could walk us through kind of the similarities, differences, positives or negatives of education systems abroad versus in America, kind of just what your experience was. Throughout throughout my experiences with these countries, I've always been in the American system. Now, it means like the classes were in English, the material was somewhat similar, so it was American schools in these other countries, but like the people weren't. Some of the teachers were like American teachers teaching us, but like half of them usually in most of these schools were also people from the area as, as you would normally have. So it was getting to know the local people, the moving around wasn't that big of a change in terms of like the material that I was earning. The change is when you're moving anywhere and you're meeting any new people, it's like, yeah, how do these people interact? What are the jokes that they make? How do they choose to spend time after school and stuff like that? So it's like, it's learning about all these like different things. And in the end, like, yeah, we're all people and we all do, we all like having fun, but what does having fun look like for like in these different groups? And it's kind of also like finding your niche finding your group of people within these places. Cause I mean, if you grow up in one place, you kind of have your core group of friends and that it's it, rarely that that changes. If you're moving around every now and then that's where it's, you got to like figure that out every time you got to know like, all right, I like this person because so-and-so and you kind of learn a little bit more about yourself. Cause you're like, why am I attracted to these type of people? Why do I like spending with these types of people? Like I had that in college too, Ben, I think you and I, one of the things that I think I like in people is like having being intellectually curious. So not just like talking about like things that may be a little bit more frivolous and stuff like that, but like actually like thinking about like why things are the way that they are. Why why does the mic that we have right here, why does it work the way that it does? And not, not saying that that's particularly important, but like being interested about it, even if it's not like delving deep into it, but like being interested about that thing. So I think that's one of the things that I've draws me to people. If somebody like tends to want to learn about things, that's one of the things that I've um, that I've liked. And it feels like that inherent curiosity almost comes from traveling or having different perspectives. Because when you're in an entirely new place, there's so many more things to be curious about. You know, when you're in a same, stuck in a routine, for example, or not going anywhere new, not experiencing new things, you can kind of focus in on the things that are the same and you know about those and then become less curious. But when you're seeking those novel experiences, seeking those new places, you can actually lean into that curiosity. So... I think that's a certainly valuable kind of perspective to have of like embracing the curiosity of new places and perspectives. I mean, dude, and also it's, you think you know everything until you learn about something that you knew nothing about. And like knowing about more stuff makes you aware of how little you know about something. So I think, yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're saying. The more you like learn about other things, get in contact with other cultures. You're like, all right, I knew nothing about this other thing. You're opening up your field of view. And then you're seeing how much more there is to to learn about, how many gaps you had that you didn't know that you had. Yeah, Jorge, from both of your stories, what comes to my mind is the power of exposure. As we all know, the saying of ignorance is bliss. And I truly believe with my personal experiences and my everything combined, I think the single most effective way to combat that ignorance or to change that ignorance is through exposure. Exposing more culture, exposing more knowledge, exposing to more people. And it sounds like you precisely did that. And through that exposure, your curiosity will be cultivated and continue to be cultivated more and more. So I do think that many people need to embrace the exposure piece and embrace that discomfort and uncomfortability because it's not always easy to expose yourself in an uncomfortable situation, in a new surroundings, in a new culture, in a new environment. 
especially talking to people who don't look like you, who don't speak like you, who don't necessarily think like you. But I think it is that exposure will like gradually shorten the gap between all of us, especially during this very politically unrestful period that we live in. In that ethos, could you fill us in a little bit on our personal gaps of where you grew up? I think Bolivia, uh, not a lot of people know a lot of the inner workings of the culture and same with Dominican Republic. I'm sure there's a lot of valuable complexities and perspectives from those cultures. Could you kind of share some of your highlights or favorite things about what makes those country unique? Yeah, sure. With each of these countries, I think I learned something new. I I liked something specific about these countries. I mean, just like going at it at a, at a broad stroke. The U.S., it's got like one of the best organized systems. And I'm maybe, maybe there's places in Europe like Switzerland where everything is more organized. Latin America to the United States, you guys have like organization way over us. It's amazing that you can go somewhere and you know that you're going to find whatever you're looking for. You know that it's going to be there for the most part. Costa Rica, probably one of the most beautiful beaches that I've ever had. They have so many of them. It's, it's just a nice place to be. Dominican Republic, it's, I think they have more of a, like a laid back attitude. Sometimes to a fault where maybe things don't get done as quickly as possible. But like they, they always te- seem to like look at the bright side of life over there. And maybe it's a little bit with like island living and stuff like that. I mean, I think with me and my family when we were when we were like starting to live there, that was definitely something that we all talked about. So it's like it's that was a nice experience being around that. And then Bolivia, it's it's where I'm from. Having my family there, the food, the culture, all that has been like what I love. That is kind of like yeah, a big picture thing. With each of these, like in terms of like gaps that we may have with these countries, I think Latin America, especially if you haven't been there, you kind of think about it. It's kind of like a shit show, and maybe it's like there's not as much organization, kind of like <laughs> what I was saying. There's not as much organization, but like there's levels of everything, like there is everywhere else. You do have like really nice buildings and stuff like that, but you also have other things that maybe aren't as nice. And maybe the media plays a little bit into this a little bit, but it's how you've seen something in the media isn't necessarily what the reality is when you go there. And the reality there isn't one. It's you have a a myriad of things that are happening, a myriad of experiences that are happening in these places without being there, without maybe, yeah, spending some time with there, spending some time from somebody from there, you wouldn't realize it. So I think with a lot of these things, it's living there and actually being there is, um, that's where you pick up and like you see those gaps that you had. I mean, and adding to it a little bit, and this is a bit of a, a bit of a tirade on uh, hotels that like are all inclusive. Going to a hotel and staying in that hotel where you've got all your food, all your drinking, everything like paid for, and you don't have to live this little island. Great experience for sure. I'm not I'm not railing on it, but it's not that place could be anywhere in the world, and you're not getting that much of the experience of what that country is like if you're just doing that. So yeah, the people from our are going to be local, and you'll get some of that. Other than that, you're kind of cutting yourself short. Is that the one? Yeah, you're not setting yourself up to really like get to know the place if that's the only way that you're experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Actually, leaning into the areas of the culture, right? When I went through Europe, I would only stay in hostels. For that reason, it's like I don't want to just like shell up in a hotel room and have food delivered to me. You want to go out and meet the people, see what's going on with everything. And I really love those perspectives that you brought because it seems like you're almost able to hand select the values that really resonate with you from the specific pieces of the culture, which I think is so valuable. Seeing different ways of doing things, different ways of really approaching life at the end of the day. But I'm curious, did living on just say a beautiful island, right? You mentioned that people just have more gratitude for just living in a beautiful place. Have you noticed that perspective trickling into your life now? I don't know that specifically, maybe at a subconscious level, I am having that. I do feel like I try to, whenever I'm having like a good moment, I try to like really like stay in that moment and like relish it. Because I know that that's not, I think we'd be a psychopath if we were happy all the time. So like Mm -hmm. if you are that in that moment of happiness, really just take it in. Let it like be happy. Joke around. I, I tend to joke around a little bit more when I'm happy. I'm teasing people. I'll tease you a lot more. So if I'm teasing you, I'm in a really good mood. <laughs> so like it, I try to relish and like stay in that moment because yeah, it's not the same. It's not, you're not there all the time. I'd say like when I go to Bolivia, I'm, I've been living here in the United States and working here. But when I go back, I'd really try to make 
we have like obviously dishes that you don't find here. So it's like I'm, every time I eat like one of those things, like that, this is my last silpancho is one of the, the meals. It's like a breaded, it's like a schnitzel, Bolivian schnitzel. That's like, all right, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to eat this because I'm not going to be able to do this for whatever, another year, another half a year. So I try to like stay in those moments. Also just like spending time with family. It's only when I go back, usually around the, like the, the holidays, all my family's together. It's like, this is not only is this something that I only see probably once a year, but as we get older, as people start having more family and stuff like that, it gets harder for us to get together. So it's like making sure that I take advantage of that. And like, I am with the people that I'm with without like letting little things get in the way of that happiness that I could be having. Yeah, thanks for sharing. There's definitely a lot for us to unpack. Uh, just to riff on your parents, your family importance, because culturally speaking, I think Latin Americans, Hispanics, and Asians have a lot of cultural similarities with how we prioritize and how we view the pillars of family, right? So just to throw some very dark statistics that I think, and hopefully to urge our listeners to visit their family more. I read this a very well-written article and really instilled extremely profound and dark perspective about the importance of visiting your family. So on average, Americans visit their family twice a year, Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, especially if you live in a different city. And as you alluded to, as we get older, as, as our job responsibility continues to accumulate, we get more projects, life happens, girlfriends, wife, kids. It's, it's very difficult for us to try to balance all of that. And sometimes you have to make a sacrifice, especially people in our age, in our late 20s, we are in a point where we need to fold that force into our career to make us something for ourselves to create some sort of a positive imprint. And so this article talks about that because on average Americans visit their parents two to three times a year. What that means is if we're in our late 20s or early 30s, our parents are in their 60s, in some cases 70s. That means you have a finite amount of times. In my case, I have less than 50 physical interactions until they're gone forever. With the two, with the two times with the, a year. with the average, right? Mm-hmm. It's and at most you're gonna have sixty chances of meeting your parents, and then they're gone. One day they're gone. Mm-hmm. And my mom always told me, jokingly, but I think she was serious that, like, don't cry at my funeral. Be nice to me when I'm alive, because I think the funeral has a lot of this somber and sad and sorrowful texture and vibe because there's so much regrets, right? I wish I told this person that I I wish I told this person I loved you more. I I wish I told him whatever more. And then because funeral is so sad because there's so much regrets brewing and there's so many things I wish I could have, I should have, could have, should have, could have. So I just wanted to bring that in and hopefully to urge people to visit their family. And of course, like not everyone has a good relationship with their family and there's different priority levels. I acknowledge that. But for people who do care and who do prioritize the pillars of family in their life, I think it's worth considering. So with that being said, uh, since you have a quite unique experience of balancing between two different continents and four different countries in the United States for your education system, Mm -hmm. and especially with the current political climate that we're in, education has always been one of the hot topics within the United States. And U.S., a lot of times, I think, mistakenly thinks it has the best education system in the world. I do think U.S. has one of the best education systems. It's definitely not the best. So just for some context for the listeners, what are some of the things you've taken away from education in Latin America, Costa Rica, Bolivia, whatever countries versus the education system in the U.S. and some of your experiences? They were all American schools in all these countries. Now, there was more of an emphasis on certain things. I think mathematics here in the United States, I felt like when I came from um, Costa Rica, to the United States, I felt like I was like a math whiz. And in Costa Rica, I was pretty much average. I was like, that was okay. I didn't do bad, I didn't do really well. It was like pretty much average. So I think there was more of an emphasis on, maybe it's the way that you teach it. Maybe it's not, wasn't necessarily the material, but the way that it was taught. I had a much better grasp on some of these things. So I think history is gonna be way different because you have the history of the country that you're living in from that country's perspective versus having a little bit or a snippet of it from another country's perspective. So what I've learned from Bolivia in a Bolivian school from Bolivian people about that, their history is completely different from what I would have learned here in the United States about Bolivia. Having the person living the life telling you about their history 
is way more real, way more, you're getting the first person account of it instead of having somebody telling it from as an outsider's view. So I think that's one of the things that maybe in terms of content, that was way different. For the other side, the, the, for the uh, way of teaching, the way that I was taught sticking with the mathematics, a lot of the work that we were do- doing wasn't necessarily like fill in the blank, multiple choice. And I think like the U.S. system heavily rely on like multiple choice as the way of, because I think it's quicker to, I don't know, you guys can tell me, I think it's quicker to grade that when you have like a thousand different like ballots, you can just like grade that really quickly with the Scantron, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, a lot more like filling in the blanks, doing stuff, it makes you think about the topic a little bit more. And when you're filling it in, it's not, it's not as mindless and not that my, like Scantron is mindless, but it's, you're putting a lot more thought into your response some writing something wrong could really make the whole thing look wrong so guessing is kind of out of the question on those things so it, it was like definitely having a bit more of a deeper knowledge on the on the topics in order for you to do well in that um, topic definitely i have noticed i mean especially going to penn state i'm sure you guys noticed very similar things because of the abundance of students there there was a heavy lean towards Scantrons, you know, fill out 100 Scantron answers and then they can just put it through a machine rather than grade it by hand for every one of the students. And that almost introduces like a framework of learning through only five specific answers. Like if you don't see your answer there, you can always like reverse engineer. But I think true learning comes with that like open construction of ideas of the teacher can kind of see what your thought process was of maybe like one through three was right, but then you took the left rather than the right, and that's why you have the wrong answer. So, you know, it's tough to speculate on effective versus ineffective, which one's better or worse, but just more room for expansion when it comes to education. And I'm curious if you've noticed that translating into like consulting, because I can imagine consulting from what I understand is just very, we need to solve this problem. Let's figure out the best way to go about it. Have you tied together before, or even could you expand upon a little bit that open-sourced kind of education, not just sticking to the Scantron framework, and then what you do presently? Yeah, of course. And I mean, again, I think this is part of the conversation. I love that we're like thinking about these things. Didn't come into my mind at all before just now. But yeah, it is. It's one of those things that in consulting, there is, first of all, there's no right answer. There's a lot of ways that something can be done. And you're not presented to, with the solutions like in a, in a list format where you're like, all right, I'm going to choose this one and go this way. You kind of have to think about things. There's, there's always hybrids where it's like, all right, it's both one and two, and let's try to put those together because that's probably going to be the best solution. So it's, it's a lot more of really understanding what the issue is, whatever that is, and then from there, figuring out the best way to try to attack that. And because it's open, there's more freedom to it too. So when you're going at providing a solution for it, you also get to kind of like change things as you go along. You realize that something isn't working the way that you, you were thinking. So you get to like update things as you're trying to fix that problem. I'm somewhat successful because I have this like, all right, this is the blank piece of paper mentality. Let's try to figure out how to fix this problem. This is the issue, understanding what that is and try to figure out what tools we have in order to fix that. It's finding a prescription that's not gonna, you're not gonna find that anywhere. You just gotta talk to people. You gotta like dig in to see what's happening. It's it's a good point that you bring up for sure. There's, and I, I don't know that it's only consulting either. It's probably true with a lot of other questions. You get to figure out a solution that maybe somebody hasn't done before you kind of get to like, there's a little bit of like, I'm proving that this does work. And when it does, you get that little bit of a, of a high because you've kind of like, you've in some way discovered something new. Mm -hmm. Definitely. One thing that you said that really stuck out to me is like a blank canvas, like a blank sheet. And I think whether it's consulting or another job or really just like any interaction, but walking in with a blank slate is super valuable. Just saying, all right, I might've learned some things before, but this is an entirely new experience, an entirely new set of circumstances. Let's wipe the slate clean and start fresh. So I think that's super valuable and like a really tangible piece of advice that people can like, all right, this is gonna be something new. Let's wipe everything I have clean and try and make a best decision based on, like you said, the research that goes into like this problem specifically. Yeah, I think to that, you are wiping the slate clean, but you also do have like these things that you have from before, they're still part of you and they're going to inform the decisions that you make trying to paint that new canvas. So 
I don't think it's it's a hundred percent throwaway. Whether it's good or bad, you know that you've learned from that experience before you, and it's gonna inform how you paint this picture again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I like to echo what Aiden just talked about. When a lot of times it's not necessarily hard to learn, but it's harder to unlearn. And I'm not talking about unlearning all the context, the experience, the wisdom, the knowledge. More about the misconception, the the skewed data, or whatever the approach that necessarily is shaping your mindset or your influences in some sort of way. I think it's very important to have that empty canvas mentality and try to unlearn some of the things that you know. It's going to disservice your experience and your projects for you to be specific consulting. Speaking of which, just like the um, you know pretty prestigious Big Four consulting that you work for. And a lot of medical schools and a lot of law schools, they tend to gravitate towards people with engineering or hard science backgrounds. And I know your background is industrial engineering. And when I talk to a lot of my engineer friends, because Penn State produces a lot of business and engineering people, they have a very different constructive way of thinking. And they view problems differently than people like liberal arts. Whereas my job in the policy realm is to seek solutions within the confinement of the framework of already established policies. And it's not necessarily my job to create the new policy, right? That's policymakers job. But for someone who to work in the policy, I have to find the best alignment between the type of solution I'm trying to seek for my client versus what's already available. But inventing something new takes a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of process which is why burning out and the sentiment of disheartening is so prevalent in our policy because it's very frustrating. You know there's a solution at bay. You know you could obtain that solution, but to get to that solution, it takes so much logistical process where the clients suffer. Clients are always a collateral damage in the policy realm, especially the socioeconomically disadvantaged families that service. Whereas for you as a consultant or engineer, you have the power to actually create the solution on the spot in the most optimal and timely manner, which I think is very unique. You know, with that being said, how do you think your engineering background or the mindsets or the things you learned from your education has influenced your vocation or influenced your way of, I guess, mythologies or how you approach uh, your career as a tech consultant? Yeah. First of all, shout out to Penn State Industrial Engineering. <laughs> <laughs> There is, from what you were saying about in the public policy, there is a process-based approach to things. However, there's one way that things are taught and then there's another way that things are implemented. And that, that's true, I think, for a lot of things from what you're saying with, uh, within public policy, but it's also true in engineering. Like, I have a, a civil engineering friend who just told me this yesterday. Like, there's like kind of a career within civil engineering that makes sure that they, they draw the design of the buildings and they make sure that everything looks good. These are the materials that we're going to use. This is how much weight the, the ground can take. This is how much weight the, the building can take. And then you take that and you put that into the real world when they actually start building off of that design. And there's always tinkering going on. It's like, all right, actually, this guy put this like beam here. Actually, we don't need this beam here. We're going to put it over here. There's this thing that somebody drew up. And when it goes into like actual implementation, things change a lot. And I think that's true with a lot of things. And I think that's what you a little bit of what you were saying. The way that I like to think about it for like how I apply to my work, yes, on learning some of the things that I've seen before, but not on learning them to nothing. It's looking at what the data says about these things and based on that data, looking at what that truth thing is. So if I believe something, I try to look at the data to either reaffirm what I think is true or show me that it's actually contrary to that. Like, like my belief is incorrect and I got to go another route. So I think looking at the data is one of the things that like helps me and informs me in most of the decisions that I like to do. And when looking at the data, it's looking at what like experts in these fields are giving me, what they're saying, and based on that, making that decision. So it's not just, this is what I believe and I'm going to stick to it, or this is what I believe, but I'm going to have to let that go for nothing. I mean, there's got to be something that makes me make that change. And I think looking at the data, looking at what experts say about these things is that change for me. That being said, on the data front, I think for you specifically, for public policy, it's, it's tough to look at data because even though, yes, there are ways of quantifying things, when you are looking at specific people like you are, it's tough to kind of assign them a number when there are a ton of different factors that go into a person's life. So with every person, there's so many more things that go into a person that if you're trying to use data in order to make a decision on what you should be doing for them, 
it dehumanizes them a little bit. So I think there's definitely a bit of both that needs to that need to go in. Maybe some professions more than others should rely on this data, but I think it's like it's got to be a mixture of both. You can't just there's some type of feeling, some type of emotion needs to go into a decision, needs to go into your work. That's a fantastic point you made. I think it really is relevant to the time now, both the distinction of data and a person's individual experience and the circumstances around a specific issue. And I think that distinction is really relevant to the time we're seeing now surrounding coronavirus because there's so many stats coming out, how many people it's impacting, the potential impact of it. But those are all just numbers at the end of the day. There's also the entire perspective of the people it's impacting, right? I think there's been a saying I've been hearing, it's, it's all numbers until someone you know is affected by it. And I think that really rings true of you can watch the news all day, every day. If someone you know has corona, it becomes an entirely different story. So how have you been navigating these challenging waters with, I guess, the analytical sense of your consulting background, but also the human sense of your international upbringing? Yeah, I'll start with the international piece. I think every country is treating this a little bit differently. Some are being a lot more strict with the like the stay-at-home orders, uh, making sure that you're not going out, only going out for certain reasons, where others aren't as much. So I know Bolivia, I'll, I'll speak about Bolivia because that's, that's what I know. They put in a, I think it was, I forget the number of days, it might have been like 20 or something, where people had to stay home all day. They couldn't leave for anything other than going to the supermarket or going to get pharmacy. Other than that, they were locked down. There were people patrolling like the streets. And if you were out, I think there might have been like a couple like like you had here in the U.S. at the beginning, essential employees that could be out because of the work that they needed to do. Uh, but other than that, you were pretty much fine if you were outside. One of the things with Bolivia is we've got a public health care system, but it's a public health care system that it's it's not going to be able to keep up with the number of cases that you would have from Corona if like if things explode. So right now they've relaxed a little bit of the stay at home and you see that there's a lot more cases in Bolivia and there's a little bit of a fear around there that if you get sick, will you be able to get to a bed at the hospital? Will you be able to get the treatment that you need? I think it's something that was talked about early here in the United States and it seems it's a little bit calmer where it's more of an issue that's cropping up a little bit over there. So I think that's one of the things. Still on the topic of Bolivia, the economic impact. Bolivia has a lot of a a very large gray market, which is people that operate, like they, they sell things, but they don't pay taxes, where they don't report their income, but they still, like they, they're selling like fruit out on the stands. They're, they have, they're doing a lot of things. They're being hit the most because if people aren't going outside, if people are being locked in their homes and they're not, be able, they're not able to go out and be part of that economy, these people aren't eating. They're not getting that source of income that they used to have. So that's where it's, Yes, you are keeping the, the number of people down, but you're also preventing some people from having some sort of way of living. Here, there's been like the, that safety net of PPP loans. You also have um, a, a large number of funds that was given out for unemployment benefits. There is a little bit of that in Bolivia, and I imagine in other uh, Latin American countries. It's not to the extent that it was here, so it's They've, they've really suffered and it's that's where it gets tough to like, yeah, there's a lot of people dying and there's a lot of a staggering number of people getting it, a staggering number of people also like dying from it. But there's also people that are living day to day lives and they're, they're, they don't know where to get their next their next meal. They don't know how to keep that roof over their head. So I think that's the that's the tricky thing to do. I mean, here in the United States, obviously, there's been like big talks about that a little bit kind of divided around like partisan lines, I think. But like, I think it's. It's, it's not one or the other. You got you to gotta figure out a way to tie in both so that keeping the number of infections down while making people be able to live, like having the means to live. So I don't know. What, I don't, I'd like to know what you guys think about this whole thing. Definitely. Yeah, just to echo what you said, I do think that when everyone, especially with the headlining, grabbing, attention-grabbing tendency of mainstream media... Once you put this proportional emphasis on data-driven actions, then you're diminishing the like, humanity, right? You're getting desensitized. And similarly, just to quickly touch on this, like when you hear about like the BLM movements or you know African Americans getting shot, you see that oh, that's obviously a horrible thing. It's a very somber moment to hear that number or like oh, 14 people got shot last night. 
doesn't matter if they're black or not, just anyone. But the actual circumstances and the actual heavy, somber, burdensome context behind that is, oh, 14 people, if the guys got shot, that means now their wives, their families, their children are without a father or support, without a husband. There's so much depth of circumstances go behind just a number. So I do think, especially in the public policy realm or the policy realm, that there's definitely a very tricky balance between, yes, you want to be evidence and data driven to create the most optimal and logical solution, but also being consideration of the circumstances and to acknowledge that these are real human beings just like us, you know, who are born the same way, who are going to die the same way. It's like the collective mortality or the humanity that we spoke about many times. But yeah, I do think to quickly uh, answer your question, yes, the issues, uh, not just coronavirus or COVID or anything else, the issues are going to be partisan because that's the nature of politics and our U.S. American political system is built. But I think the solutions have to be nonpartisan, right? So the issues may be partisan, but solutions have to be nonpartisan because it doesn't matter if you're red or blue, Republican or Democrat, liberal, left, right, doesn't matter who they are. Most of us want the same thing, the safety of our families. We want the best thing for our kids. We want a roof over our house. We want to have income that many Bolivians are suffering because of the shadow economy and because of the restrictions based on the COVID complications. So I think it's, it's very difficult because obviously the current administration is under huge criticism for shutting down the whole economy. And what that means is a lot of the human services, such as like the DHS, uh, a lot of domestic violences and abuse and perpetrators are roaming around free with zero checks and balances, with zero mechanism, because those people aren't working. So what are those perpetrators doing? They're home. What about the people, the victims of the abuse? They're stuck home with their perpetrators. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of severe and profound complications. At the same time, if you don't shut down the economy, then you're, we already lost 200,000 people, Americans of lives. That's going to triple or double the numbers. So it's very tricky in a sense that um, you have to respect and you have to acknowledge the data because unless it's like skewed data, the actual factual data is our numbers don't lie. Yeah. If they're actually factual and yeah. evidence-based. But at the same time, you also have to be consideration of the human elements that they're more than just a number. You know, these are real families, real livelihood. They're just like us, identical. It doesn't matter if you're the president, the policymaker, whatever, what level you are in a society. At the end of the day, we breathe the same way, we eat the same way, we drink the same way, we sleep the same way. Um, so yeah, I think we really have to focus on nonpartisan solutions because at the end of the day, how can we move forward in a productive way that's going to benefit the most people? Yeah. Definitely. I think the solution really lies in the middle, like you guys both alluded to. And the big thing that jumps out for me is that we can't assign data or evidence to the long-term implications of this. I mean, thinking about being a child caught up in this, I can't imagine the like long-term education consequences, friendship consequences, how they deal with their problems. Uh, I just think we can't assign data to what that looks like now. I mean, by no means trying to short-sight the real-time implications of people getting sick and dying, but there's also long-term implications of everything that's happened. And to me, it seems like there's two sides being public health, the well-being in everyone, and freedom of wanting to, like you guys alluded to, show up for your work, have that paycheck, have that sense of purpose. But I really think there's like a middle ground where people can still have freedom to support themselves and their family, but just in a different way, whether that's remotely or over the telephone, but then also looking out for the good of others. One phrase that I kind of like try and hold myself to is sooner or later, health becomes your number one concern. And that really rings true right now because everyone's looking out for each other's collective health, right? Like your poor health might impact people around you and then that would negatively impact the people that they care about. So obviously we have to consider that because it impacts everyone around us. But at the same time, America was founded on freedom and I think there's a way to incorporate that into the public health element. So for me, it's just really a reallocation of resources and energy. In my mind, no reason that the NFL should have been able to launch when our education system still can't launch. Yeah. You know, it just, I think, speaks to what this country is prioritizing of putting our money into certain things, in this case, entertainment. I mean, I do love a good football game. Sports are sweet. <laughs> but at the same time, like our kids have to learn. Uh, and our kids learning has fundamental impacts on how the rest of 
you know, these next few decades are going to go. So it's tough to assign data of what is a year out of the school system going to say for our economy and GDP 20 years down the road, but it's definitely a conversation to be had. So that's kind of, you know, it's kind of stuck in the middle of a rock and a hard place because obviously it's a complex issue. There's no right answer necessarily, but I just think that there's a lot of things to be considered that it doesn't seem like they're being considered now. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think I like what you said there at the end. It's, it's hard to find a solution. And it, maybe it goes back to like what I was saying before that you have these gaps. Anybody who I think has a solution for this problem doesn't know enough about the problem that they like, they're like, oh, yeah, this is what you have to do. It's hard. And I, I don't know if you guys have heard that, but I have a couple friends that are like, yeah, this is what you have to do. And it's like, there's so many other impacts that you're not thinking about in that solution that should be considered. And it's such more of a complex problem that's not going to be figured out by what you thought of in whatever these 30 minutes that we talked up that, um, yeah, I think it's, it's one of these things that I don't envy the people making these decisions because I know that it's not something it's easy. And yeah, I also want to say with the data, yeah, the data isn't going to give us everything. It's going to be, it maybe a starting point, but there's all the, these, these other things that, yeah, there's repercussions that you don't think about that you're not quantifying. And then how do you, how do you put that into the fold of your decision on what best way to, to attack the problem? So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a tough situation. I think what we can do as individuals is try to like, yes, try to not get other people sick. Try to be a little bit more, try to be a little bit more wary about the situation around you and not live your life as, as you were before, having a little bit more of that, going out and trying to make any other decisions like that. Yeah, just more empathy and humility and consideration for the other people as the bottom line, I think, as team humans. So to take a pivot and to make a full circle back to your life, I've known you for six, seven years now, way too long, if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) But I've known you've had this aspiration ever since in college when I first met you that your eventual and your ultimate purpose and your goal is to go back to Bolivia and help in some meaningful way to help rebuild the infrastructure of Bolivia. Because as someone of with your immigration experience, you would know that U.S., in spite of all the flaws and the shortcomings, it is one of the most properest and best structured and organized countries, period. And I think consulting is such a perfect field for you, especially uh, technology consulting, because as a consultant, you have the unique opportunity to exposure that I spoke about earlier, to expose to different industries, to different clients. I know your clients are from Aureo, from telecom, to oil, to to tech, to anything, you, you deal with everything. So I love to, you know, dig a little bit deeper into your aspiration and some of the skill sets or things that you're hoping to achieve through your current career or the future career and how that's going to empower you to be able to go back and give back to the infrastructure of the society of Bolivia in some uh, constructive way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you, we've talked about this a lot of times, so you've hit it, the nail on the head. It's consulting you get a wide array of different experiences even with my like upbringing in other countries as well you kind of like the more you know about other things you kind of get to like pick up some things that you like from each place and then from that kind of build build whatever you want to build and for i mean if you're trying trying to make make a company the more companies you know you can pick up some of these things from these companies that they're doing well seeing what works what doesn't and then from that being able to kind of either apply that to your own company or apply that to wherever you're working. So that was one of the things that uh, consulting was that opportunity for me. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that there were a ton of other things that I didn't know about and trying to, again, fill those gaps that I had and I was going to be able to learn more about these things. So consulting was like a natural to me as soon as I knew what that was during my like last couple years of college I was like this is this is what I want to do I I, I was I'm happy that I got a a good job within the consulting realm where I have been able to experience all these other different things Um, I've been able to see some of the things that the the inner workings of some of these companies I think that's been absolutely fantastic right now I don't feel like I've ever gotten bored but if I ever did I'd be able to like go on to something else and try something else I definitely want to hear about Bolivia on the tail end, but as you're talking through this, I'm really curious for some of like the problems that companies have been facing right now. I mean, maybe a little bit outside of coronavirus, but like specific, 
difficulties and or ways that you guys go about solving them that you see maybe in completely different industries, but still the companies facing the same struggles? Maybe it's culture related, maybe it's customer related, but are there any like things that really jump out as problems that are facing our corporate America right now? One of the things is definitely like supply chains. We live in a globalized world. Like a plane is taking pieces from 30 different countries, tons of all all over the continent. So moving all those pieces from other places and getting them to work one place where you build that all together. It's a logistical feat to do it. It's a logistical nightmare during times of Corona where there's reduced workforces, sanitation and more like infection related regulatory stuff that you have to navigate. So no matter what you're doing, as, as long as you're providing a physical product, you have to take all those things into account. And a lot of the supply chains for a lot of, um, not just America, but the entire world, is having to deal with all these things. There are supply chains that haven't been changed and haven't been like really made robust. And there, there's a group of people saying something, something like a pandemic could cause these supply chains to break so that you won't be able to provide all these products that you were providing before. And this was like before COVID. And then like, obviously this resurfaced after because like, this is exactly what we were talking about. So a lot of the supply chains, it's, there's a lot of like technology around it, making sure that product that you buy from Estonia in Europe is coming all the way to you. So making sure that there's like a good communication between the two countries to know where that product is so that you can then be able to set your process, set your manufacturing process around that, like knowing that that piece is going to arrive on a Wednesday at 3 p.m. A lot of these companies are not having this issue. They're like, all right, we need to beef up our systems in order to have better supply chains. So I think that's one of the big things that we're seeing um, using, I mean, going back to using data to like know, all right, this, there could be a, possibly, a possible delay in this. We have X amount of products. We also see that a lot of companies are stockpiling more of their items because they know that if there is another break in the supply chain, if there is another uh, sources of whatever pallets is no longer producing that, you need to stock up on those because those are going to be part of making sure that you get your product out to different uh, clients. So I think that's that's a big one. Definitely been something that been brewing, mm-hmm. as those experts were saying, but it's um, it's more more top of mind for a lot of the companies now. And it's definitely an issue that needs to be addressed. For some additional context, in case some of the listeners are interested in the consultant realm, especially you working for a big four, what are some of your day-to-day life functions like? Like how do you, because consultant is such a loose field and loose term, everyone says they're a consultant on Instagram. Like, oh, everyone's an entrepreneur, <laughs> everyone's a consultant. Obviously you consult and you solve problems, but I would like to inquire a little bit about the more specifics yeah. for some context. In addition, if you're able to maybe talk about the most interesting or proud project you worked on because consulting is very project-based. Yeah. And with that, with consulting being very project-based, my experience that I'll talk about right now may be completely different from that of another because consulting, it is a kind of like a broad word. It changes a lot. So what I say now may not be the truth for anybody else, but I'd say like, let's like in a week. There are meetings, so you're being hired by a company in order to um, fix a problem that they have. They don't know how to fix it, and they, they bring you in in order to fix that problem. So once you're already kind of set up and you know what that is, every week at the start of the week, you have a, a touch point. You have a meeting with that client to understand what they need that week. So you've, you've delivered whatever. You've delivered a report saying these are your sales for this year, this week, this month. These are your sales. What do you need from this? What more information do you need? What are you lacking from the report that we can figure out? So it's talking to them to figure out what they need immediately also, but also what they need like further on. After you have that meeting with them and kind of set that, I would go back to my team, the people that I'm working with, in order to figure out how we can give them what they need. So sometimes it's a report. And again, I work mainly with data and like the analysis of it. So it's creating these these reports that not pieces of paper, but like on a program, Tableau, shout out to Tableau, that report that making sure that we are fixing the things in that report so that it fits what the client needs. Sometimes in that tinkering, in that talking with your team, with the people at your company, you're able to kind of figure out like, hey, she wanted this or they wanted this, but we can actually provide this plus this 
because there's this easy way. So you kind of like, that's where you can, not only are you giving the client what they were asking for, but you can give them a little bit more. So it's working with then your team to figure out what the best thing to do. And the kind of the rest of the week is kind of implementing that, checking in on people to make sure that their pieces are being done and then putting all that together. Now, it's a little bit easier to work now during COVID because you're working on a computer and you're, you're working on these things and communication hasn't been tough. So the day-to-day hasn't changed much from that there other than that you lose that like physical human touch that you would otherwise like speaking to like you guys right now in person is way better than having to do this over the phone or like over the computer because you can pick up on like what people how people are reacting to certain things and like it's a it's a better conversation but yeah i think that's that's my experience within consulting i think for the most part it's solving people's problems solving clients problems how that looks what the time spans are and how much time you put into that is really varies from project to project and probably from consulting company to consulting company as of the one like a good project that I liked um, with the data analysis, it was something that was new to me. It was put on my lap as I started a new project and I didn't know, I didn't know how to use the tool that I was being given. I had to learn how to use the tool while also navigating the, this is what the client needs. This is the problem. Like it was learning these two things at once. And that was a bit of a challenge. Like I was doing two things that I should have been doing one at a time. So that was a situation and I ended up having to do again, data. It's just numbers. Having a visual way of showing those numbers is going to always going to paint a better picture. It's going to make the job for anybody looking at that information a lot easier. The name of the game for data analysis is trying to paint a picture with all these numbers. So showing things in the quickest way possible so that when somebody looks at that graph, they're like, okay, this is what's happening. I can see sales are going up, sales are going down. And then any other intricacies, intricacies that you can find in that. So it was figuring out a way to not only what they needed, but also how do I actually do this in this program? That was a great experience because I was, I was thrown in the fire. I didn't know, I didn't know much about that program. It was going to be tough, but I made a ton of different prototypes. I like, I showed the, I showed the clients each and every step, like what I had in order to make sure that I was going the right way. So I, I got it to a good point and then I was like, all right, let's, let's show them. Let's see what they want. If it's not what they want, we'll go ahead and scrap and we'll start anew. If not, let's go ahead and keep keep building on this to make it a little bit beefier. Let's see what else they need. So it was understanding what their reactions to these things were. And then also then like putting that into the product itself so that they had a product. So I think if anything, that project was the, not the epitome, but it was like, that's what you think a consulting project is. You're getting constant feedback from your client who's paying you to do something. You're updating your product, you're updating your deliverable with that feedback to, to really give them what they want. It ended up being a great project. We like It was a small team that kind of ended up being bigger because we had done a good job with, with what they were getting. Uh, that they're like, all right, let's, let's build it up a little bit more and let's have a couple more people doing this for us. So it was a, it was a good experience. And I like the, the challenge aspect of like, yeah, I didn't know anything before and now I'm, I'm really well versed in... I provided value and I provided what they were, what they were seeking for. I'm really interested if this is a hindsight perspective, what was your day to day looking like while you were actually in this project? Cause I personally worked in audit for a little while, which is similar of just meeting with clients, sometimes like tossed into something that you've never seen before. And at the time it sucks. Like there's no other way about it. You can kind of speak to it with that hindsight. I learned so much often the, you know, most painful or challenging experiences are the ones that help you grow the most. Was this a newfound perspective while you were on the other side or what did the day-to-day look like while you were doing? For sure, we tend to glorify things as we look back at them. I definitely had those days where like, this sucks, Mm -hmm. especially those longer days where you're trying to, you're building something and something isn't going your way and you're trying and trying and trying and it's just not helping out. Those days sucked. Like there's no way about it. I think overall the experience, I was working with the people that I was working with, the client that we had was good enough so that it wasn't an experience where like if I did one thing wrong, I was going to get crucified for it. It made it a little bit better, made it bearable. But mm-hmm. did I have moments where I was like yelled at for like doing something? Maybe. Did I have moments where I was like, oh, it's, 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 I don't know, it's late at night, 10, 8. And I don't want to be doing this anymore, but I promised I'd have it by the morning. All right, let's keep through this and keep doing this. Of course, like, I I think we all tend to paint a rosier picture as we look back at things. 
But I think all in all, it is in the moment. It was it was better moments than there were bad moments. Definitely, and I think that's an important like perspective to paint the rosy picture. I think that's often an indicator of success or happiness or wisdom on the other side. Like painting the pictures that's rosy around a bad experience makes it like exist as something good rather than oh I had to work past five thirty that one day. You know, you're actually extracting value from that challenging time. So I think that's super valuable. Um, appreciate you sharing. Yeah, of course. And I think we were talking about this also the um, like the work life balance. I think for the most part, yeah, you have some like in, in consulting, you have some long days, you have a little bit of flexibility too. sometimes like during the day, there's not a lot of jobs that like you're like, all right, I need to take off to be able to go to I don't know the store to buy something, or I need to go take off to go to the to the, to the dentist or whatever. There is a lot of flexibility in that. It just kind of depends on what you have to do and how much of the work you have. But sometimes you're, you're a little bit lower and you kind of get to like cruise a little bit more. You get to get out by 530. You get to get in at like a eight, nine time. Other days, you're just, you're just like on it the whole time and you have to just like race through it. And at least in my experience consulting, yes, there have been long days. But there's also these days that are a little bit a little bit calmer and that like constant change makes it so that it's a little bit more bearable because when you're thinking all right i'm out i don't want to do this anymore these hours are too long you get that like slower period and it's, it makes the, the contrast look a little nicer i think especially for millennials i think we're the first generation and of course generation z behind us to truly talk about it have a conversation about work-life balance the generation before us so like work-life balance what is that like fuck you let's just work you know <laughs> And I think that's the reason why the generation before us always talk down to the next generation because we tend to glorify our own experience. Oh, we had it so much tough back in my days, right? With that being said, yes, it's important to talk about work-life balance. But to me personally, I think it's very imperative for us to front load a lot of effort in the beginning to select the career they truly love. Because although as much as I'm disheartened and cynical about my work, Within the past three years, I generally really, really loved what I do because I do see the impact. I do work with clients in a very vulnerable level. And in that sense, I don't mind coming to work at 8 p.m. sometimes or even 9 p.m. because one of my clients or family has some sort of emergency situations, right? And I think it is that mission aligned purpose to your career is going to carry you through the highs and the lows. So I just wanted to speak to that. And uh, as some people may know that I'm officially in the application process for grad school, as I've, I think, explained on the show before, I'll be taking a 360 degree career hard pivot from my policy involvement to clinical psychotherapy. And I just recently finished my rough draft for my personal essay, for my personal statements. And jokingly, when I was reading and I was writing, I realized if I didn't have a lot of hardships growing up, this would be a boring fucking essay. <laughs> I would have nothing to talk about. I would have no motivation, incentive. Like, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to do that? I think a lot of times our experiences and circumstances shape our decision making in the future, right? Whether it's a rosy picture or not, it influences in a very fundamental way. And yeah, that's what I think what I thought about as I, as I was writing my essay because I had to mention a few of the very vulnerable and difficult times of my life, which motivated my decision to eventually go into that uh, clinical therapy realm. Uh, with all that being said, because your career in consulting is such project-based, and in a way, you could almost view Bolivia and your future aspiration as a big project, right? And all the highs and the lows, the long days where you're working till 10 p.m., or some days when you're cruising a little bit more, that's going to be amplified when you eventually hit that milestone of, this is what I want to do, this is the area I want to tackle. And once you carry that wisdom and expertise and experience back to Bolivia with you, I think it would definitely benefit you. But so I'd like love for you to talk a little bit more about maybe what are some of the areas you're interested in or maybe just the fact that you're still venturing or exploring in what meaningful and constructive way you can give back and help out your country. That's exactly why I got into consulting, to be able to figure out what things are being done, how things are being done, and what things are being done well so that I can then take that back to Bolivia and do implement that in some way. I don't know exactly what that looks like right now. I'm still in that discovery period like you were talking about. Um, Try to keep a good pulse on what's happening in the country. Um, Just talking to friends, reading the newspaper and and doing everything to know like what, how things are going for the country. 
but I'm also like working on these all these other things that yeah some late nights and everything to be able to really have something to draw upon when I do want to go back to Bolivia when I do know what I want to do over there and actually be able to give back in some way I think for the most part like although I do like my work I like the people that I work with it's not something that I want to do for the rest of my life it's I I do want to go do something more meaningful and to me more meaningful means giving back to my country I don't know what that way is I'm still again in that discovery exploratory phase but I am looking for I'm constantly looking for a way like figuring out something that will help the country but also like 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 you were talking about Aiden there's the, there's the unintended consequences of these children that aren't going to school during covid I want to make sure that what I'm doing doesn't have these negative unintended consequences that I have because even though my intentions may be good in whatever I want to build there could be like environmental impacts there could be societal impacts there could be more disparity because of what I'm putting in so there's a little bit of fear of and it may cause like paralysis of analysis but I do like to think about these things I do want to make sure that when I do something it's it's the right thing and it's going to provide a net positive impact Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.